Hey there, Intriguers, and welcome back to Intrigue Out Loud. We'll be doing things a little bit differently during the summer months, trying some new things, getting rid of some old things, testing out a new Tuesday-Friday schedule, all with the hope of truly making this show your one-stop shop for global news. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the upcoming NATO summit in Vilnius. Then later, John and I will tell you what's been on our minds. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm doing very well, Ethan. It's nice to see your face again. Yeah, yeah. We are back uh, to the podcast after a week off. I missed you very dearly, but I mean, <laughs> you can only you, you can probably guess what I was doing. <laughs> Have a stab at it. Well, you're on vacation. Yes, on vacation, celebrating. The glorious birth of your free nation. Is that and, right? And how do we, uh, we Americans celebrate that holiday? Oh, I think it's generally pretty quiet. Cup of coffee. <laughs> that would be great. I would be feeling a lot better about myself if that had been the case. But no, John, there were uh, dozens of hot dogs and, and not dozens, but a handful of light beers. Uh, so that was how I was spending the last week. And I was doing my darndest to steer clear of the news cycle. Good. So w- what did I miss? Well, you missed a lot, but I, I commend you for trying to avoid it because uh, the show always rolls on no matter whether we're paying attention or not. But you did you did miss a bunch of things. Uh, there were some pretty big protests in France, um, a peace agreement in Colombia. Uh, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she finally ended up going to China for economic talks that seemed to go pretty well. Um, but the good news, Ethan, is that you're back just in the nick of time for a very highly anticipated NATO summit uh, over in Lithuania. Uh, wouldn't miss it for the world, John. So, so what's on the agenda in Vilnius? Well, have you ever been to Vilnius? I haven't. Have you? No, never been. Never been. Okay, well, we got that. Good. We got that. <laughs> Clear that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think those who are in Vilnius will be um, they'll be chatting about one big thing in particular, and that's weapons deliveries to Ukraine. It's a little bit of an ongoing saga, um, but there's an unexpected twist to this one, and it's that the U.S. announced uh, last Friday that they're planning to send cluster bombs uh, as part of a new $800 million military assistance package. Um, and now for those unfamiliar with these these weapons systems, cluster bombs are like kind of like shotguns, right? Mm. Um, it's a single bomb, but it explodes into lots of other smaller bits and smaller bomblets, I think is the word they use. Um, the idea to kind of increase the spread of the bomb. Super effective against tank columns and infantry that's kind of moving across a field, um, which is how that war is currently being fought, obviously, but they're incredibly controversial and you can probably guess why. Um, It's because what happens after the war is over, up to 40% of these cluster bombs fail to detonate uh, and they can then be picked up by civilians and then they accidentally detonate and they cause horrific damage. Um, I think it's important to note that the White House has said that the cluster bombs that the US plans to send only fail at 3%, but, you know, 3% is still... Too many, too many, too many. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, at least anecdotally, anecdotally, I, I spoke with an, a former American service member, as one is wont to do over uh, the July Fourth <laughs> holiday, of course, uh, about about this uh, this new policy by the Biden administration, and I, th- I think there's a bit of surprise. Uh, they know, you know, this this person was telling me what these weapon systems do. Um, they're pretty lethal uh, to civilians mm. after wars are over. So, so what do you think, uh, what are America's NATO allies thinking about this? Yeah, I think 
they're probably surprised and and not happy as well. Um, it, it, it's it's an odd decision in terms of why now, why spend the political capital being controversial now? Um, you know, and, and it is controversial because two thirds of NATO members are signatories to a two thousand eight treaty. Um, signed by 120 countries worldwide um, that actually banned the use of cluster munitions um, because of their risks to civilian populations. So these these are you know pretty widespreadly agreed to um, that, that, that that these cluster bombs aren't sort of great weapons, right? right? Um, well, they're great weapons in in certain contexts, but- right? And maybe the way to place it is that they they aren't justifiable given the risks or something like that, right? Um, That's fair. And I think NATO allies kind of see the inconsistencies there. Perhaps they worry that NATO will lose the moral high ground that it's definitely had since um, Russia invaded and it's criticized Russia for using these weapons during the war. And that's an important thing to note that Russia has been using these kinds of things in Ukraine already. Um, and the US has justified the decision by pointing to Ukraine's diminished weapons stocks. You know, Ukraine is running out of ammunition and weapons, so they, they want to kind of rearm Ukraine with effective weapons. Um but you asked about how the Allies are receiving it. I said not good. I mean, Biden is sufficiently worried, I think, that he was he visited the UK before landing in Lithuania, um, visiting with Prime Minister Sunak ahead of the summit to sort of try and ex- probably explain to the UK what they're thinking. Um, uh, and, you know, even though the, the, the UK has banned cluster bombs um, and Sunak has said he opposed the move, I've, I read some things saying that most officials in the UK, they're pretty cordial talks and they understand why the US is doing it, but they can't get on board with it for, for lots of reasons, right? I don't, yeah, I don't think there's a risk to the relationship or anything like that, but it'll, it'll be discussed at the summit for, for sure. It's an admirable aim to support. I mean, this is how NATO allies would see it. It's an admirable aim to support Ukraine's war effort quibble about how the U.S. is doing it. That's right. uh, but John, what else is on the agenda? I mean, and, and there's been some a heated debate around finding a new person to lead NATO for the first time in a decade. Any progress there? Yeah. Well, there has been progress. There were, there were lots of candidates, as you say, to replace Jens Stoltenberg. I think British Defense Minister Ben Wallace was a top candidate for a while, as was the Danish Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson. But uh, last week, they put Everyone out of their misery, uh, and and I think I think Secretary General Stoltenberg of Norway agreed to extend his, yeah, as you say, nine year term now for yet another year. I think it, you know it's pretty simple decision. NATO, it's not a great time to change your leadership in the middle of the most important uh, crisis that you faced really in the ever. last thirty years. Yeah. yeah, probably ever. Yeah, exactly, or, or arguably ever. Certainly in the last thirty years. Um, and you know, Stoltenberg's done a good job. He's well liked. He steered NATO pretty, pretty uh, competently through a pretty difficult situation since Russia invaded Ukraine. Stoltenberg is like that guy that you know says he doesn't want to go to the party. You have to keep trying to beg him to, and then obviously he's coming to the party. Uh, you think he just wanted to be asked? Huh? Exactly. <laughs> and, and one thing, John, you didn't mention about uh, Stoltenberg's lengthy tenure uh, is that he he finished the task of onboarding uh, NATO's newest member, Finland. And there are a few other new members that are interested in joining uh, the the organization. What's the latest on the bids of Sweden and others? Yeah, well. Um- as we know, they submitted a joint bid with Finland, as you mentioned, um, but that's being held up by Turkey. Um, some complicated domestic politics between Turkey and Sweden there that we don't need to get into. But uh, yesterday, literally just hours after saying that Turkey would only agree to Sweden's joining NATO if the European Union agreed 
to restart long, long stalled accession talks with Turkey. So, you know, Turkey wants to join the EU. He, Erdogan was making uh, Sweden's membership of NATO contingent upon them getting into the EU, EU, but then he like changed course hours after saying that and apparently agreed to, to allow Sweden's bid to join NATO to go forward. And mind you, John, that that all happened five, ten minutes before this very moment when we started recording. Luckily, we got it in. <laughs> I know we're scrambling yeah. a bit, but it's, 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 I, I don't know what to make of it. It's a bit odd, and, and Erdogan moves in mysterious ways. Um, I mean, I think my, my quick take on it is that it's a good thing because you know, Turkey's opposition to Sweden has been a pretty big blow to NATO's unity for more than a year also now, um, you know, a lot remains to be done and we've got to take Erdogan at his word. Maybe, maybe he is serious. Um, at least he seems willing to have these kinds of conversations about Sweden joining without attaching these huge concessions. Um, but I would say also that the past year of holding up Sweden joining kind of shows the problems with allowing vetoes in these kinds of organizations. You get, you get political leaders able to kind of play domestic politics with issues that are far larger maybe than, than, um, than their own countries. But don't let that depress you. I think overall, it's very good. Sweden looks like they're going to join NATO pretty soon. Okay, so let's talk Let's talk large issues. Let's talk the largest issue. What about Ukraine's NATO bid? This is going to dominate the talks, right? Yeah, I think, I think it will dominate the summit, and it will almost certainly uh, dominate the headlines that come out of the summit in the media. Um, you know, the crux of the question really is, how do you ensure that Russia doesn't invade Ukraine once the war is over, uh, you know, from the start of the war, I think there's been this worry, this risk that Russia will kind of negotiate a ceasefire, restock its arms, retool its army, and then and then go again. N- not unlike they did after the invasion of Crimea in 2014. Um, so preventing that from happening is has been a key goal of NATO, and I think um, at least some folks think that NATO membership would achieve that, right? Um, you know, mostly countries along NATO's Eastern flank that are most exposed to Russia, not surprisingly, um, because it would give them article five protection under the NATO charter. What's that about? Yeah. That's, so that's just this idea that, um, an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all. So it's the crux of why NATO is such a big deal for people who don't follow this stuff. It's like being a NATO member basically means that if you're attacked, the U S the UK, Germany, all have to come to your defense. So it's a huge deal. And it also escalates everything, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's get to that. Because because an attack on one, in this case, a country that Russia seems very willing and able to attack, uh, if that becomes an attack on all, then NATO's in trouble. Totally. And that's why some countries, most notably the US and Germany, the two of the I think the two largest economies in NATO, that's why they want to find some other solution. Uh, Germany actually, I think, promised to block Ukraine's bid if it's brought up. And Biden has said over the weekend that Ukraine isn't ready for NATO membership. I think the US has floated this idea of kind of like an Israel option where they kind of commit to supporting and building up the Ukrainian military and giving them capabilities. This idea, again, not unlike what they're doing in in Taiwan, this idea that you make it such a hard target to invade that that uh, Russia wouldn't come back and try to take Ukraine again. Yeah, the porcupine exactly. uh, for our biologists, exactly. friends. So it seems like on the leadership front and on Sweden's bid, NATO's making some great progress, less so on the issue of Ukraine's membership and what sort of weapons NATO is willing to supply to Ukraine. Right. But I think those are relatively minor issues in the grand scheme of things. Um I think NATO is pretty laser focused on helping Ukraine win this war and end it as soon as possible. They think Putin's weak right now. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no denying the tensions within NATO, but as a layer on top of that, I think 
I think Euro- European NATO members might have one eye on the U.S. election, and, and in particular, one one man in in particular, Mr. Trump. Uh, you know, leadership, U.S. leadership and support for NATO potentially becomes less certain after the elections next year, even in the run up to next next election next year as the US kind of political system is unable to focus on anything else but itself. So I think a lot of NATO members kind of see this summit as the last or the best chance of kind of really solidifying the, uh, the, the alliance um, for the future. Today's show is sponsored by Todoist. Todoist is the easiest way to organize your work and your life. All you have to do is download the app to help build detailed to-do lists to keep on top of everything you need to do and to help delegate tasks to coworkers. I use it every day to keep on top of my schedule. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So like I said at the top, we're going to try something new. Actually, we'll we'll probably be trying a lot of new things on the show over the course of the summer. But this first new segment is called, uh, let's call it the Johnologue. How about that? (laughs) It's where John tells us what stories he's been following. Well, I love the name. Obviously, but it doesn't fully reflect what we're about to do, Ethan. I think because uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask you a few of your thoughts as well. The Johnologue <laughs> and the Ethanologue. <laughs> okay, well, may- maybe we need to workshop that okay. a little bit over the summer as well. Um, but yes, okay. To start off, this uh, one of the, a story that I'm watching at the moment is um, global oil output. Um, I'm watching it pretty closely right now. Now. Before you all fall asleep, I know it sounds pretty boring, but it's always a pretty good idea, I think, to check in on oil prices um, as the northern summer kind of kicks kicks off. Um, you know, folks in America at least load up their cars for vacation, and uh, the news cycle is kind of slowing down. And the price of gas, in my experience, always seems to dominate headlines here in the U.S. around about now. Um, and I think oil producing countries recognize that it can be quite a good time to influence the US political conversation. Not to mention the the election that you exactly talked about right. a little bit earlier. Yeah, exactly. So um, the news, the actual news hook here, Ethan, rather than me just waxing on about oil prices, is that Saudi Arabia has announced <laughs> uh, that it'll continue to cut its oil output by a million barrels per day for another month, uh, taking us through to the end of August. Um, on top of that, Moscow um, is cutting its oil exports by about 500,000 barrels a day in August, and Algeria will cut its output by about 20,000 barrels. All of that amounts to about 1.5% of global supply. Um, and, and that's before we talk about the concerns around Libyan oil exports. And you know we don't need to get into it, but there are domestic factions, political factions competing for control over their oil exporting ports, which means that you know we're not sure how much oil we'll get out of Libya either. This sounds like a recipe for, for rising oil prices. I mean, what does this tell us about the global oil market? Yeah, well, I mean, Normally you'd be right, um, but the oil markets seem kind of, you know, not that phased by these announcements, which is a little surprising on the face of it. Um, in fact, prices have been falling a little bit. Um, that seems to indicate to me that oil traders are pretty pessimistic about economic demand going into the second half of the year. So output's falling, but they're thinking that demand is going to fall as well. Um, I think also traders might be pricing in some of the uh, a little bit of the possibility that the the US and Iran can conclude a a more limited version of the Obama era Iran nuclear deal uh, uh, that would kind of end sanctions on Ara- Iranian oil, which would add about 1.5 million barrels of oil per day to the market. Um, that's something I'm going to be watching pretty closely over the summer, I think. Um, so I think the 
to the TLDR, the good news is that most analysts don't see gas prices rising soon. Bad news is that's likely because the economy isn't going to go super well in the second half of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so what's on your mind, Ethan? What's uh, what's what have you been watching, John? You want an an, an ethanolog? An ethanolog? The crowd, yeah. the crowd Again, goes we're gonna wild. workshop that. Yeah, <laughs> we're sticking with it. Well, and I, <laughs> and I think I'll stick with the uh, commodities theme and tell you about a big diamond deal in Africa earlier this month between the government of Botswana and the British diamond company De Beers. Lots of people will have heard of De Beers. Some might even be wearing one, uh, wearing a De Beers <laughs> diamond, that is. But I, think, their luck. <laughs> but I think people will be somewhat surprised to learn that Botswana is actually the world's second largest diamond producer after Russia. Um, and unlike lots of resource-rich countries, uh, we talk about a, you know, a resource curse in, in foreign policy. Yeah. Botswana has converted this partnership with De Beers and the wealth it generates into you know, I guess, I guess a lot of wealth. Uh, just for reference, John, at the time of Botswana's independence in 1966, it had just 12 kilometers of paved roads uh, and was among the poorest countries in Africa. Today, it's the third wealthiest country per capita in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, outside of a, a few island nations. Uh, and arguably, it's the continent's most robust democracy. It's a nice, it's, it's, it's nice anytime there's a positive good news story coming out of Africa, you know, a story about a country that's managed to turn its, uh, I guess, natural bounty into, you know, meaningful gains. But what does um, Botswana's success in turning its natural bounty into wealth, what does that have to do with this diamond deal? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great that's a great point. Well, first of all, just on your, your first little, little point there, I became fascinated in Botswana uh, as an undergrad in college because I had oh. no idea that this story about you know about its success it doesn't get talked uh, about, does it? And that's probably no, why. hardly at all. It doesn't fit an overarching narrative. It's not a geopolitical powerhouse. It's it's mm. it's it's fascinating because it is so instructive about how resource-rich countries can transform uh, into highly developed economies. Uh, mm. and, and those are somewhat rare stories, as you said. Um, but on this diamond deal, I mean, Botswana has been pushing De Beers for a bigger share of the earnings from its diamond business and, and threatened to blow up this partnership that had been in place since 1966 if it didn't get what it was hoping for. And for a while, it looked like the partnership was doomed. But just a few hours before the deadline, really, I mean, people were watching this up to the last minute. De Beers agreed to raise the Botswana government's share of revenues from 25% to 30%. And that number could rise as high as 50% in coming oh, years. Wow. So all in all, the hardball worked out for Botswana. And, yeah. and the broader point here is it would not at all be surprising to see other resource-rich countries start to demand a lot more from you know their partners, European, American partners. Uh, so certainly something to, to look out for. Yeah. On one hand, I'm kind of skeptical of brinksmanship in these kinds of deals. But on the other hand, um, if Botswana has been successful, it can provide a blueprint for, as you say, these other countries to kind of um, better their lot as well. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you, John. We'll see you, see you soon. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, we want to hear from you this summer. If you like the changes we've made or if you can't stand them, reach out to me at ethan at internationalintry.io. And if you really like the changes and really like the show, make sure to leave us a rating and a review. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. 
See you on Friday. 